Now, there's many things that you don't learn in seminary because seminary just doesn't have time to teach you everything. And one of those things that seminary doesn't have time to teach that it probably should take some time to teach is what to do when you're with a family and a loved one dies. In my very first pastorate in southeast Louisiana, Montpelier Baptist Church, it was 3 o'clock in the morning. I was sound asleep. The phone rings. And whenever the phone rings in the middle of the night in the home of a pastor, nothing good usually comes of it. And sure enough, it was Miss Annie Hoosier. Gilbert and Annie Hoosier were two of the most prominent people in Montpelier Baptist Church. They were the two most beloved people in Montpelier Baptist Church. They were raising their granddaughter. Gilbert was the chairman of the deacons and the chairman of the pastor search committee that called me to be pastor. Every Sunday that we didn't go to someone's home to eat, we went to the Hoosiers' home to eat. So we knew the Hoosiers very, very well. And Gilbert was my most vocal supporter. That is, people loved him, and so they followed him. So they would follow me because they followed Gilbert. And Annie, she was frantic, and she said, Pastor, please come. I think Gilbert's dead. And so I I hurriedly got ready, and I made my way over there, and probably less than uh, 10 minutes after I hung up, I was standing in her kitchen, and there was Annie and, and their granddaughter, and they were crying, and they said, Gilbert's in the living room. I think Gilbert's dead. Would you go in and see, Pastor? And so I walked into the living room, and there was Gilbert in his chair. Many times he sat in that chair, and we would talk after, after lunch, and watch football together, and, and there he was, and I walked up to Gilbert. I, I felt his pulse, and there was no pulse, and he was, he was very, very cold. And it was obvious that, that Gilbert was dead. I think Annie knew it, but in the shock of the moment, I don't think she, would, she had yet believed it. And so I walked, into the, I walked into the kitchen, and she said, how is he? What, what is, what's wrong? And just about that time, I could hear the ambulance coming and, the, and, uh, and law enforcement arriving. And, and I said, Annie, I think Gilbert's dead. And she collapsed into a chair, and there her granddaughter and I and Annie, we, we hugged one another, and we stood in that kitchen, and we, and we cried. And sometime early in the morning hours, maybe around 6 o'clock when I went back home, Jaylen uh, said, what, what's happened? What's wrong? And I said, well, I said, Gilbert's, Gilbert's dead. And she began to cry, and we hugged each other, and she said, what did you say? I said, I, I didn't say anything. I didn't know what to say. She said, well, what did you do? I said, the only thing I knew to do was to cry and to, and to pray for them. Well, over time in pastoral ministry, you find yourself in, in hospital rooms it seems like the most inopportune time for the minister, but just the right time for the family. And with some family members and with some church members, I've, I've been there when, when they've left this life and passed into eternity. And, and it is it's a very difficult moment. Those, those times, it's, you just don't know what to say and to do. Well, the passage we're at this morning, the passage we're going to read is the death of Jesus. In the Gospels, the only other person whose 
death is actually described. It's the death of John the Baptist when he was decapitated. But the death of Jesus has given a lot more space, has given a lot more attention, has given a lot more detail because of the significance of this death. We began, we began looking at it two weeks ago when, when he was taken to Golgotha and there impaled on a cross and, and we looked at those hours and the events between nine in the morning and, and uh, up to 12 noon. And we, we saw how his enemy circled him like a vulture circles a dead carcass. Now they began to taunt him and mock him and belittle him and, 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 and shout at him. The passerbys taunted him. The religious leaders mocked him. Even those who were hanging on the cross screamed out at him. And this morning we find ourselves in verse 33 when the clock strikes 12. I've entitled it the darkest day of all, the death of King Jesus, the Son of God. I'd like to begin reading in verse 33 and read all the way through the end of the chapter, verse 47, if you would follow along. These are the words of our God. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which translated, is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he is calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him a drink, saying, Let's see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene. And Mary, the mother of James the Less, and Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him, and there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. When evening had already come, because it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea became a prominent, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, and he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time, and summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Joseph bought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where he was laid. The disciples probably 
felt like I felt in those moments when I stood beside Annie Hoosier. Although they were hiding in fear and terror when word reached them that Jesus had died. What I want you to notice as the passage begins is that King Jesus dies in darkness. King Jesus dies in darkness. It's 12 noon. The sun was at its peak. The temperature was beginning to rise this first week of April, A.D. 30. It was going to be a hot Palestinian spring day. And there Jesus hung between heaven and earth, languishing in and out of consciousness. And there at 12 o'clock, it says in verse 33, until 3 o'clock, darkness falls. It's the darkest day of all, so to speak, because King Jesus is languishing on the cross, barely conscious, in a sense drifting in and out of shock. And the scriptures are being fulfilled. In fact, a little bit later on, as the followers of Jesus would have reflected on this event, Amos chapter 8, verse 9 and 10 would have surely come to their mind. Amos reads, In that day declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. You see, the disciples would have thought that God's plan had come unglued, unhinged. And yet, Scripture is being meticulously fulfilled. He's being numbered with transgressors. We looked at that last week. They gamble for his clothes, a reference to Psalm 22. We looked at that also a couple of weeks ago. Things are happening right according to schedule. But from the disciples' perspective, God's about to lose the war. He's won numerous battles in the casting out of demons, the healing of the sick, and in the confrontation with the religious leaders. Everything looked like they were on the precipice of establishing a messianic reign, and now the one that they believe to be the Messiah is moaning and groaning toward death, and the sun becomes dark. It's reminiscent of the ninth plague of Egypt. Do you remember the ten plagues of Egypt? The ninth one was was absolute darkness over the land of Egypt. In fact, it was so dark that you could not even see your hand in front of your face. And in a world that was superstitious and fearful, they would have been a people filled with fear because this is a bad omen, this is a bad sign, this is a horrific event. And they knew that, that the God of Moses was striking them again. The ninth plague is followed by the tenth plague. The darkness is followed by the death of the firstborn. From Pharaoh's house to the most lowly slave, the firstborn in every family was to die. 
throughout all of the flocks and all of the land, the firstborn would die. With the exception of those who killed a lamb and took the blood of the lamb and smeared it over the doorpost so that when the death angel saw the blood, the death angel would pass by. You see, the darkness at Golgotha was God's announcement that his beloved son, his firstborn, the Lamb of God, was dying for the sin of the world. The blood of the Lamb is about to be shed for the salvation of sinners. And the second exodus will be greater than the first exodus. The first exodus brought Israel out of Egypt and bondage to Pharaoh. The second exodus will bring the people of God out from bondage of Satan, sin, and fear of the second death. Everything is happening right on time, although those who are watching from a distance are watching in abject horror as God's beloved Son hangs on the cross. I want you to notice, secondly, that King Jesus dies alone and abandoned. King Jesus dies alone and abandoned. You'll notice that if you have a red-letter edition of the Bible, Jesus speaks in verse 34, but Jesus hasn't spoken in Mark's gospel since chapter 15, verse 2. Back in chapter 15, Pontius Pilate said, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, It is as you say. And then Jesus' lips fall silent in Mark's gospel. And the next time Jesus speaks... He speaks in his native tongue in verse 34. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Mark graciously translates it for us. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not too many weeks ago, we, we contemplated and we wondered, why did Jesus collapse in the Garden of Gethsemane? It was a shocking moment, a stunning moment for us as we studied through the narrative to find the Son of God brave and courageous and bold walking through this gospel as a messianic king. And then he throws himself on the ground in the garden and he says, if possible, let this cup pass from me. And now we see exactly why he prayed that prayer. Never had there been a single moment in his incarnation or prior to his incarnation going all the way back throughout all of eternity. Never in a single moment had he not known the manifest presence of his heavenly father. Never had he not known what it was like to be in perfect communion with his heavenly father. And he never knew what guilt felt like. He never knew what sin was like. He was the perfect, holy Son of God who lived in perfect communion and fellowship with His Father. And now in this moment, He quotes Psalm 22, 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, Psalm 22, 1, it's a, it's a psalm about a righteous sufferer. And, and Jesus is the, capital T, the righteous sufferer. 
the psalm begins in abandonment, but it, but it ends in victory. And so there have been many theologians that have suggested that, that, that Jesus, when he quoted Psalm 22, verse 1, uh, he, was, he was directing our attention to the end of the psalm, to the victory. And while I think that Jesus knew the way that things were going to go, Jesus knew that he was going to be raised from the dead, that in this moment he experienced what he had never experienced before, abandonment. He had been abandoned in the garden by his disciples. He had been abandoned to Pilate by the crowds. Never had he known what it was like to be abandoned by the Father. You know, I could have said in that kitchen that morning, you know, Annie, you're going to see Gilbert again. We know Gilbert's a believer, and, and you can feel all right about things. You can feel good about things. You can be happy in the fact that you're going to know him again. But those words were absolutely true, but they would have rung hollow in that moment. It's not that she didn't know that. Is that in that particular moment, she found it hard not to believe it, but to experience it. You see, it was in that very moment, I believe, that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. It was in that moment that he was suffering in our place. Peter put it like this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. And Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. This is the way that Paul put it. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In that moment, Jesus Christ was cursed. In that moment, he experienced God's righteous indignation against sin. In that moment, all of our guilt was heaped on him. In that moment, he knew what he had never known, guilt and abandonment in our place. In that moment, he felt what Adam and Eve felt when God expelled them from the garden. In that moment, he experienced what every lamb that had been slain for a, for a preliminary forgiveness of sin experienced when that lamb's throat was cut and its blood drained. Did he know that he would be raised from the dead? He absolutely knew it. But in that moment, he experienced what hell was like for you and me. He experienced what people who don't know Jesus will experience forever and ever. As he cried out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? He helps us to understand that hell is a place of abandonment. It's a place of loneliness. It's a place of suffering. It's a place where people bear the punishment for their own sin. And Jesus bore that in our place. 
when he cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus experienced hell on God's cross. He's not speaking very articulately. His tongue is probably sticking to the roof of his mouth. There's been already a significant loss of blood. He's already been through a a tumultuous torture in his flogging. And there he sits in the Palestinian sun. He's been on that cross now for over three hours, and at some time between 12 o'clock and 3 o'clock, when the, when the, uh, during the darkness, he cries out, and, and they, they don't understand him exactly. They think he's calling for Elijah. And so in, in kind of a further act of humiliation, uh, they, they take a sponge, and they dip it in some cheap wine, and they put it on a stick, and his head's probably about seven feet off the ground, and they they, they allow him to take a sip, just moisten his lips, free his tongue. Let's see what else he has to say. Because there wasn't a single person around that cross that believed that there was, Elijah was coming for him. And then he utters a loud cry and he dies. Look at verse 27. It's stunning. We know from the other Gospels that there was other things going on. But in Mark's Gospel, he dies with an inarticulate scream. This isn't John's Gospel. In John's Gospel, Jesus, just before he dies, says, It is finished! We could turn to Luke's Gospel, and, and Luke says, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. In John's gospel, John the Apostle and Mary, the mother of Jesus, aren't too far from the cross. In Luke's gospel, there is a, there is a, a, a criminal hanging beside him who puts faith in him, but not in Mark's gospel. Mark wants us to see the absolute horror of it all. He wants us to see that Jesus died abandoned and alone as he cries out an inarticulate scream. It's the exclamation point on the end of a once promising life. It's the exclamation point on the, on the demise of a, of a, a once likely messianic king. So he screams out words that aren't even articulated here. And he dies. But I want you to notice that that immediately following his death, certain things begin to happen. King Jesus' death opens up for us the way into God's presence. Jesus dies and God responds. And the first thing God does is he tears the veil of the temple. And notice it's It's torn from top to bottom. Look in verse 38. And uh, the temple veil is torn from top to bottom. It's torn in two. It's separated completely. Uh, There were several large, massive curtains in the temple precinct. We don't know exactly which one this is. But it's very likely that in part what's being communicated here is that, that by Christ's death, he has opened up for us Entry into God's 
presence. It, it may very well be the, the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Remember the holy of holies, only the high priest could enter the holy of holies and then only one single time a year on the day of atonement. That's where God was to have dwelled in a particularly powerful way. And now that veil has been torn and that door has been opened and all of God's people can go in. In fact, the author of Hebrews put it this way in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and 20. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, So as Jesus dies, the temple veil is torn and the way into the presence of God is now open. But that's not all that happens. Look in verse 39, the Roman centurion, he's, he's the, the lead soldier over this detachment of soldiers that have been guarding the cross. He's one of the soldiers that gambled for, for Jesus' clothing as he now hangs there Naked and dead. And he says, truly this man was the son of God. Those are not words we've heard very often in the book. But we do find them in strategic places. Turn back with me to Mark chapter 1. The very first verse in the very first sermon that we preached in Mark's gospel... We talked about that title, Son of God. In fact, it's Mark's entryway into his gospel. It's the foyer, so to speak, into the expansive, magnificent beauty of the gospel of Mark. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We think that's a, that's a stunning statement to make right at the introduction to the book, to acknowledge Jesus as Son of God. Uh, we go down to verse 11. Verse 11 of chapter 1. And a loud voice came out of the heavens. You are my beloved son and you I am well pleased. In verse 1, Mark says he's the son of God. But in verse 11, God says he is my beloved son. Turn with me to the gospel of Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9 and verse 7. On the Mount of Transfiguration. A, a, a cloud forms overshadowing Peter, James, and John. And God speaks from the midst of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. The only other references to Jesus being called son of God in the gospel of Mark before this are demons. Demons acknowledging that Jesus is God's son. They do it out of fear and horror and terror. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. They made numerous comments like that. But now here he hangs on a tree and he's dead. In his weakest moment, apparently. The moment that he looks anything but 
like a king. The moment that he looks anything but like God's son. And this Roman centurion, he's been watching what's been going on. He's been listening to what's been said. He has observed how Jesus cried out. He has seen the way that Jesus died. And he says, truly this man was the son of God. Did he believe it in his totality? Probably not. But for all of us who know him to be son of God, as we read this, it's like an exclamation point. This wasn't his defeat. This was his announcement of victory. This wasn't his demise. This was his crowning moment, so to speak, which will be quickly followed by his resurrection. This was the entryway into heaven being opened up. Jesus died physically, but Jesus wasn't dead. Jesus' body ceased to move, but Jesus was every bit alive. Every bit alive as Gilbert Hoosier was alive, although his body was dead. King Jesus opens up for us the way into God's presence, but fourth, I want you to know that, notice Even in his burial, King Jesus' death fulfills an ancient prophecy. The women are watching from a distance, and you can only imagine that they probably could tell the moment that he finally collapsed on the cross, no longer struggling and straining for each breath. And they would have likely embraced, they would have cried uncontrollable tears. And they're going to follow the body of Jesus to the tomb where he's buried. And out of the darkness comes a figure that we've not heard from before, a figure that hasn't been mentioned in the gospel, a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. We discover that he's a member of the Sanhedrin. We, di- we discover that he's a faithful follower of God. He's been waiting for the, for the kingdom of God. He's been a secret disciple, apparently. You, you look in Matthew, Mar, or Matthew, Luke, and John, and you discover he's a wealthy man. He's a highly respected man. And he was opposed to the execution of Jesus. But he lived in the shadows. He was a secret disciple. But now, in his weakest moment, Jesus' weakest moment from a human perspective, where he looked anything but like a messianic figure, Joseph of Arimathea comes out of the dark. He musters up all of the courage that he has, and he asks for the body of Jesus. He's going to take it down from the cross. He's going to, he's going to wash the wounds. He's going to wrap him in a burial cloth. He's going to put a, uh, a cloth over his, over his face. And unbeknownst to him, he's a part of a prophetic act. He's a part of a divine prophecy being fulfilled. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. That couldn't describe Jesus and what happened to him any more perfectly if it had been written on the day that he died, but it was written centuries before he died. To look on at this scene and to have been a part of the drama, it would have been 
it would have been the end of a promising life. It would have been the crushing blow to the hope and dreams of a messianic kingdom. But God's plan was being fulfilled. God's plan was fulfilled when he was numbered among transgressors. God's plan was being fulfilled when they gambled for his clothing. God's plan was being fulfilled all along the way with meticulous specificity. Even when they put his cold, dead, lifeless body in that grave. Well, what's all this mean? Let me give you a couple of final thoughts. What does it mean for those of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? Let me mention two things. First, if Jesus died for us, we should be willing to live for him. If Jesus Christ died for us, God forbid that we don't live our lives for him. So what does that look like? It, it looks like by the grace of God, embracing the courage that comes from the Holy Spirit to live like Joseph of Arimathea. Come out of the darkness and into the light and be a gospel light. It means live for him in your home by being the kind of husband that is the leader and the forerunner of the family and that rallies the family to worship and follow the Savior. It means living at your job as one who actually is the light of the world, a city set on a hill that can't be hidden. And rather than cowering in fear that you might be discovered that you're a believer, plant gospel seeds. Don't be so overbearing and condescending that you turn off those that you work with day in and day out, but, but pray for them and look for opportunities to speak a good word for the Savior and allow the seeds to be planted and pray for the watering of those seeds and ask God to bring those seeds to fruition. Be a gospel neighbor where you look over the fence and you talk with your neighbor about all of the activities of the weekend and, and they mention, you know, we're going to be out of town my my mom is very ill and we're going to check on her. And you say, well, you know, Gary, I, I, I want you to know my family and I are going to pray for your mom. We're going to pray for Gary, could I pray for your mom right now? And you plant a gospel seed. If Jesus is willing to die for you, then let's, let's be willing to live for him. If Jesus was willing to die for our sin, then let's put our sin to death. Let's go to war with our sin. Let's not make excuses for our sin. If we know we've got, a, we've got a sin of pride, let's go to war with it. If we've got a loose tongue, let's go to war with it. If we are, are selfish and greedy, let's go to war with it. If we find ourselves being harsh in our, in our language to our children, let's go to war with it. If Jesus was willing to die for our sins, then let's be willing to go to war with them and put them to death. But what about for the unbeliever, for the person that doesn't know Jesus? Fanny, Fanny Crosby is one of the most celebrated hymn writers in all of hymnity. If she didn't write the most hymns, she's, she's in the top two or three. Fanny Crosby was born in the 19th century, and at a young age, she became blind, and she died about 1915. 
But at the age of, of 12, she was concerned about her soul because she didn't really have a heart for God. And she was concerned that she didn't really have a heart for God. She knew that she didn't have a heart for God, and she wanted a heart for God. She was at a revival meeting, and it was during the singing of a song by Isaac Watts, at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light. And she said it was during the singing of that song, a visually impaired young lady saw the light. And during the third stanza of the song, she made her way to the altar. And she found God during the singing of Isaac Watts' song at the cross. Well, that's where we're at right now. What better day, what better moment to find Jesus than at the cross. At the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light. In just a moment, our worship pastor is going to come and lead us in song. We're going to stand and we're going to sing and and we're going to give you an opportunity. Maybe you would like to talk to someone about your spiritual life. We're definitely not saying by walking, coming forward, you're being saved. What we're, what we're saying is we'd just like to take you out and talk with you in a, in, a, in a way that would be beneficial to you. Answer any questions without any kind of manipulation or coercion. We'd just like to talk with you. Maybe you've been looking for a church home and you say, you know, Jesus died for me. I'm going to live for him right here. A part of living for him is being intricately involved in a local church body and using your gifts for the advancement of God's kingdom and the ministry to God's people in a local church. And you would come forward and and say, Pastor, today, at the cross, at the cross, I've seen the light. This is where God wants me at this time in in my life. I'm going to ask you to stand, and Craig's going to come, and we'll, we'll sing in just a moment. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, we thank you that in what a, appears to be the defeat of the Son of God, we have the victory of God's Son. And Father, we've often overlooked those words of abandonment, and we've read them too quickly and not thought about them deeply enough. But in those moments, he bore our sin and his body on the tree. And he felt absolutely alone, abandoned. We don't know how that works its way out in a Trinitarian way, but we know that that's what happened because that's what you've said happened. And so, Father, we pray that in these final moments, your spirit would take your word, use it in our lives for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.